Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, my wife, Erin, is here with me and our kids. And Erin and I enjoy being married. One of the things we love about being married is that we get to play lots of board games together. <laughs> and my secret shame is that I can hardly ever beat her. <laughs> But it is our favorite thing to do together. One of the reasons why I do it is because for years I've been playing board games hoping that someday I could find a sermon illustration. <laughs> Today's the day. So, Aaron's favorite game is the most stressful thing we have in our collection. It's a board game called Agricola, which is the, Agricola is the Latin word for farmer. I think it's a game about farming. You're building a farm and you have to build fences to, so you can, you can pen your, your cows and your sheep and your pigs and, and then you plow fields and you grow crops and everything. And you're doing all this stuff on your farm. The most annoying thing is at the end of each round, you're, you're placing your, your workers to go and do different actions. And then at the end of a few rounds, you have to feed your people. You have, you must have collected enough food to pay a certain amount of food to feed your people. And it's annoying. Aaron owns this game. I mean, she she kills me at it. It feels like she's natural at it. We get to this thing and everything falls into place just like she is. But for me, at the 11th hour, I always have to send out my workers and hire day laborers to get more food at the last second or else I'm going to die. Because if you lose too many foods, then you don't have enough to feed your people and you lose the game. Now, there's another game we play, which is much better. It's called Stone Age. It's a similar game, kind of like farming, but it's prehistoric. And you have to feed your people, except the difference with Stone Age is that it's a viable strategy to starve your people. <laughs> I'm serious. You can get by without feeding them because the loss of points for not feeding your people is limited, and it's possible to multiply your tribe quickly enough so that the penalty of starvation doesn't really affect you. Now, the Christian life is much more than a board game. But know this, Jesus will feed his people. Jesus will feed his people. He came to earth for this purpose, to give life to his people. And before he left, before he went back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of his father, he made sure that he would provide food for his people. The bread of life is available for you, for me, here and now unto eternal life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning in John chapter 21. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 590. We are completing our study of John. We've been going through the gospel of John for some time. We're going to finish the book this week and then next week we'll wrap it up. We'll, we'll take a look at the whole book in the big picture. But we're now at the end of this series, John chapter 21, where Jesus is going to perform the final sign that John wanted to record for us. And so you can see on your outlines that we're going to see two things in this passage. First, we're going to see that the Lord feeds his disciples. And second, the Lord makes sure his disciples will feed others. And all this is for the main point that Jesus will feed his people. Let me pray for us and our time in the word together. 
Our Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus to give life to the world. And you didn't just tell us about it. You didn't just drop it off and go on your way. But you took great care to make sure that your disciples would be fed and they would be equipped for the ongoing feeding of your people. Lord, we ask that you would feed us now this morning. Feed us on your word, on your life. Give us more of your spirit. Give us more of you. And we pray that as you do so, we ask that your life would overflow out of us abundantly into the world to those around us that we might feed others. We pray that you would do this now and bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 21, I'm going to read the first section, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the first section where we see the Lord feeds his disciples. The bracket, there's a bracket around this passage, which is that Jesus revealed himself. You see it in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again. And in verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. So first, I'm going to observe the story, but then we'll go back and see what this sign reveals about Jesus, because the point of it is to reveal Jesus to his disciples. So first, in these first few verses, we see seven disciples who decide to go fishing. They're in Galilee, which is the northern part of the land of Israel. They're possibly not sure what to do. So Peter is the ringleader. He says, I'm going to go fishing. They say, we're going to go with you. And they try it all night, but they catch nothing. So in verse four, Jesus appears on the shore. In verse five, he asks them, do you have any fish? The answer is no. So in verse six, he explains how they could find fish. They will find the fish on the right side of the boat. 
So they cast their nets there, and they find provision of fish so abundant that they can't even haul in the nets. These guys are fishermen. They're used to this work. Verse 7, John, who is called who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's the first one to recognize Jesus. And notice, he doesn't recognize him as Jesus or as Christ or as Son of God, but you see how he recognizes him? Verse 7, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. And that is Jesus' primary identity in this chapter. He is the Lord. It's similar to Thomas's confession that we saw in the last chapter, Chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus and he said, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus is here, the Lord. Once they're on land, Jesus has a charcoal fire going. They bring in the fish. Jesus has some fish already cooking on the fire. He also has bread, but he also asks them to bring the fish they caught. And Simon Peter goes back and hauls in the net with the 153 fish though the net miraculously is not torn. So Jesus invites them to have breakfast with him, and in verse 12, none of them dare to ask him about his identity. They won't dare to ask him, who are you? Because they know he is the Lord. John is driving this repetition home. He is the Lord. And that word, Lord, is an important word. It's a very important word because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word Lord is the word that was used to translate the name of God, Yahweh, Lord. And John is saying, and the disciples are recognizing, as Thomas recognized in the previous chapter, that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. So Jesus offers them the bread and the fish in verse 13 and 14, we're told, that this whole thing was about Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. So, we must ask, what is Jesus revealing to the disciples through this sign? I'll give you four things that Jesus is revealing to the disciples. First, he's giving them confirmation that he is the Lord. It's in the text here three times that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is offering confirmation that he is Yahweh. He is God. He is the one who provides miraculously for his people. As first, he's the Lord. Number two, he can provide more than they need. That's the second thing that he reveals about himself. Jesus can provide more than they need. Even though they can catch nothing on their own, Jesus provides more than they need. Number three, what Jesus provides, they don't even need that because he has more. They don't even need what he provided because he has more. Do you notice how they catch all these fish in the nets? They can't even haul the nets in. They drag them to shore. But when they get to shore to have breakfast, what is already cooking on the fire? Fish. They don't even need the fish that they caught out in the sea. But Jesus lets them catch those fish and they get to shore and he has more for them already cooking. The idea of it's of abundance, heaping upon abundance. So first, he's the Lord. Second, he can provide more than they need. Third, they don't even need what he offers the first time. Here's the fourth thing he reveals. This is the summary. 
Jesus feeds his disciples with a practically limitless supply of food. That's what this sign is all about. Jesus is the Lord who feeds his disciples with a practically limitless supply of food. John has already told us in chapter 6 that Jesus is the bread of life. He is giving life to the world, and the life of the world is himself. The point here is that Jesus wants to give himself to the world, to give the world life, but the in the act of doing that, he wants his disciples to have a role to play. So he wants them to catch those fish. He wants them to bring the fish in. He wants them to come and have breakfast with him. How does this apply for us? Friends, do you believe Jesus is the Lord? This is the heart of the church's confession. Jesus is the Lord and God raised him from the dead. If you believe these things in your heart and if you confess them with your mouth, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And as the Lord, do you think that Jesus has enough food to go around? Do you trust that he has enough food to go around? That he's actually not tired of you. He's not waiting for you to provide something for yourself. It's not true at all that God helps those who help themselves. Friends, when you are disappointed with yourself, God is not disappointed with you. When you're tired, he's not tired. When you're angry, he's not angry. When you're exasperated with life, he's not exasperated with life. And when you look for your life in your kids or in your looks or in your body or in your career or in your financial stability or in your athletics or in your education... When you look for life in these things, Jesus stands on the shore calling to you, offering you life in spades. He just says life, abundant life that never ends. Jesus' restaurant never closes. And it doesn't serve rice cakes and celery. His restaurant gives you seafood and the carbs of eternal life. I wish I could afford seafood in my regular food budget. I go to Jesus for it. You know what eternal life means? It never ends. It never ends. You know, for me, I I just finished yesterday coaching Little League. Our season ended yesterday. And all through the season, as I was helping to coach our kids' teams, I wanted the kids and the other coaches and uh, the, the parents of the other kids, I wanted them all to respect me. All through the season, I struggled with this. And especially on one of the teams, all the other coaches on the team had so much more experience than me. They were so much better at knowing just the right thing to say at the right time that was going to inspire the kids and make the parents swoon and be like, oh, you're such a great coach. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what I am, but I couldn't figure it out. What, but what I had to do over the course of the season was I had to stop looking for life there. I couldn't get life out of the coaching, out of the kids, out of the parents, out of the other coaches' respect. What I had to do was let that go, look to Jesus, who had more life for me than I could imagine, and then I was free to serve. 
so that the kids could learn and have a good season and I could have opportunities to just get to know people regardless of my lack of experience. So we must know this, that the Lord feeds his disciples. The Lord wants to feed you. That's the first point that we see from this sign. Number two, in the last rest of the passage, we're going to see that not only does the Lord feed his disciples, but he makes sure his disciples will feed others. And there are two keys to this passage that you can see in your outline. Those two keys are restoring Peter and then contrasting Peter and John. Let's start with restoring Peter. Starting at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This section shows how Jesus will provide his flock with shepherds to continue feeding his people after he goes back to heaven. Even though these shepherds are weak and foolish and imperfect. And there's some background we need to understand about Peter. Uh, back in chapter 13 of John, in verse 36, this was the night before Jesus died. Jesus was talking with his disciples and Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus had this interaction with Peter where Peter wanted to follow him, even unto death. Peter was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus wasn't so sure about that. Uh, well, he's, are you going to do it? Don't worry, you will follow me, but uh, this time you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. And Peter meant what he said, because in chapter 18, we see that Peter gave it his best effort to follow Jesus, his very best. And he was willing to die because when Jesus was arrested, Peter was the only one who pulled out a sword and started fighting. He was ready to die for Jesus. And Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Put your sword away. This isn't the time. And Peter was devastated by that because Peter was willing to die. Peter was willing to give it his best effort. And Jesus turned to him and basically said, your best effort isn't good enough. I have other plans right now. I have to do what God the Father wants me to do, which is to die. 
And Peter then did follow Jesus. It's fascinating. In chapter 18, verse 15, after that arrest, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And they went in to where Jesus was on trial and uh, to where there are some people standing and warming themselves by a charcoal fire. It says that in chapter 18, verse 18. And Peter denies three times that he knows Jesus. And I think we can be reasonably certain that when Peter denied that he knew Jesus, he didn't do that out of fear. He didn't do it because he was afraid, because he already showed that he was willing to die and he was willing to fight if he had to. I think Peter did it out of bitterness because his best wasn't good enough for Jesus. And now he was ready to run. But now in chapter 21, where we are in our passage for today, it's on another day with another charcoal fire the only other place in the Gospel of John where there's a charcoal fire. And Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And the first time he even says, do you love me more than these, more than these other guys who are here? Peter, Simon Peter, are you still willing to give it your best effort? Do you love me? Will you love me? Will you follow me even to death, even if these disciples don't? Will Do you love me more than these? And I think Simon Peter gets what he's asking because he's come to realize that following Jesus is not about the strength of his love for Jesus. It's about the strength of Jesus' love for him. Because Peter says this remarkable thing to Jesus. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You see, the main verb in that sentence is not I love. The main verb is you know. You know that I love you. Jesus, my confidence is in you. My confidence is in the fact that you know that I love you. And they go through this three times. And each time Peter, or sorry, Jesus responds with something like, feed my lambs or tend my sheep or feed my sheep. Just as Jesus has fed Simon Peter over and over again, and he just fed him with 153 fish in this net that wouldn't break. And with the fish and bread already cooking on the shore, with food abundant unto eternal life, so now Simon Peter is to go and feed Jesus' sheep himself. Three times they go through this little Q&A session. Three times Peter expresses confidence in Jesus' knowledge of his love. Though we're told that the third repetition grieves him. His own failure three times is too keen, strong in his memory. Three times Jesus commissions him to feed or tend the sheep. And Peter is no longer to be a fisherman. He is to be a shepherd. And a shepherd, as Jesus said in chapter 10, a good shepherd is one who lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus says to him at the end of verse 19, follow me. Be a shepherd for others like I have been a shepherd for you. And he speaks about Peter's death in verses 18 and 19. Because a good shepherd dies for the sheep. Peter couldn't follow Jesus before, despite his best efforts. But Jesus says now, as he said in chapter 13, you will follow me later. And now is the time. Jesus won't let him go. And Peter will follow Jesus unto death. He will follow Jesus even if he has to lay down his life. The main idea here of restoring Peter is this. Jesus restores Peter from his failure so he can feed the sheep. 
The whole point is to get Peter back in a position where he can feed Christ's sheep. How does this apply to us? Friends, Jesus will feed his people. He will feed his people. He died and rose so he could bring his people eternal life. And then he went back to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit who would empower Jesus' disciples in his place to take on the role of feeding people. So please know this. Your failures do not disqualify you. Your failures do not disqualify you. Jesus does not want you to make it up to him. Jesus doesn't want you to do better than others. Jesus doesn't want you to keep beating yourself up. Jesus doesn't need you to forgive yourself before he can forgive you. He wants you to rest in his complete knowledge of your love, the love that he's given you because it's his perfect love coming through you. Jesus knows what's best for you and what's best for you is to feed his sheep. That's restoring Peter. Now, let's see how the narrator goes on to contrast Peter and John. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's how John refers to himself. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Earlier in this chapter, there was an implied contrast between Peter and John because John recognized Jesus as the Lord and Peter hurled himself after the Lord into the sea. Here, at the end of the chapter, the contrast, the implicit contrast, gets explicit. Because in verse 20, Peter turns and he sees this disciple and he says, Jesus, what about this guy? Actually, he doesn't say Jesus. He says, Lord. Lord, what about him? What about this man? And the, the contrast is pretty explicit in these verses because John says that this disciple is the one who was reclining at table close to Jesus and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So both John and Peter, in a moment of intimacy with Jesus, asked a question about somebody else. John asked about the betrayer. Peter asks about John. There are a whole bunch of other contrasts in here. I'm going to leave it to you to, to see them. John is drawing quite a few, but I just want to, I want to hit on the most important one that I think John sets up all these contrasts to drive to this one point, which is the contrast in mandates, in their mandates. Jesus' mandate to Peter is, follow me. Follow me. He says it twice in verses 19 
And then he repeats it in 22 after Peter concerns himself with John. He says, you follow me. And it's clear that the following that Peter is to do is to be the shepherd who feeds the sheep. The shepherd who lays his down, lays down his life like Jesus did for the sheep to feed the sheep. That's Peter's mandate. John's mandate from Jesus, verse 24, is to be the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. This is the disciple bearing witness. He's the one who wrote these things down, and we know that his testimony is true. You see, one of these disciples must focus on serving and giving his life. The other disciple must focus on speaking and writing and bearing witness to the truth. One of them is going to give his life. One of them may live for a very long time, even to the point where the rumor went around that he would never die, and John has to dispel that rumor. The main idea is this, that Jesus feeds his people by empowering his disciples, and he empowers different disciples in different ways. For the church to thrive and to feed on Christ, we need both those who serve and those who speak, those who lay down their lives and those who have long lives to bear witness to the truth. And these are not isolated categories. It's not always one or the other. If you look at the book of Acts, we see Peter doing plenty of speaking, and we see John doing plenty of serving. So nobody does only speaking or only serving. But what we need in the church is both forms of shepherding if we're going to thrive. Jesus fed his disciples so they could feed others. And Jesus showed the way. All through John, we've seen Jesus do two things. He serves by performing a sign, and then he speaks by explaining what the sign reveals about himself. He serves and he speaks. He acts and he bears witness to the truth. He has his works and he has his words. And his works are the works of the Father, and his words are the very words that the Father has given to him. And so now his disciples take on his image, doing his works and his words, speaking about Jesus' works and speaking about Jesus' words, doing Jesus' works on his behalf. In fact, he said they would do greater works than he did. And they, the Spirit would bring to remembrance all that he said so they could speak his words. And all of that is, in, is to reveal Jesus to the world and offer people eternal life. How does this apply for us? Friends, our church needs both disciples who serve and disciples who speak. There may be some who do better at preaching, leading Bible studies, counseling, evangelism, those who are bearing witness to the truth, and some might, might do better at providing hospitality and visiting people and coordinating things and getting people together. All of us will do some degree of both. It's never one or the other, though we might have strengths in certain areas, and that's okay. The Lord may call each to a stronger measure of one or the other, but we cannot proclaim Jesus and eternal life to our community without both serving and speaking, works and words. Our basic message is that Jesus served. He did the signs and he laid down his life. And the rest of our message is that Jesus spoke. He revealed God the Father to us so that we could be made right with him and have our sins dealt with. And the temptation in our church and in any church, 
in any community, the temptation is going to be to resent each other. It's going to be to compare ourselves to each other and to fight with each other. Because those who speak feel like those who serve don't care about the truth. And those who serve will feel like those who speak don't care about people. And so that temptation will always be there. We all get focused on ourselves and we forget our basic calling to feed the sheep and to die like Jesus, to lay our lives down. At my previous church, my pastor gave me the most helpful advice I've ever received about how to handle criticism. He told me that whenever somebody criticizes his church, he knows that that means that God has gifted that person in a particular way. And that's how he hears the criticism. And he, he told me this. He, he said, if you think about it, if someone is criticizing us for something, it's because they're good at it and we're not. And when God gifts you at something and he gives you a strength in a certain area, it makes sense that you would feel like other people aren't as good at that thing as you are. Therefore, you're going to feel like they don't do it very well. Therefore, you're going to complain about them not doing it very well. And so he said, it's, we just have to make the choice when we hear criticism. Instead of getting defensive and upset and saying, what's your problem, buddy? We have to choose to interpret that as God has gifted you in that area and we need you here to help us with that. That's why you don't think we do it as well as you do. Then let's put you to work on it. How can you help us? And that, that just amazed me. And that's why the elders here at our church, we love your feedback. We want your feedback. We want to hear from you and we want to find ways to get you involved. Because if you see something that we aren't doing very well, you are probably right. <laughs> Thank you. And as a church, we're moving into a new phase, Lord willing, in the next year or so, less than a year. We're looking at new locations as we outgrow this room, as uh, Disciple Makers is planning to renovate this building. We're looking at the possibility of buying a building. We're looking at the possibility of partnering with other churches. And friends, we need your help. As we go through all these changes and forever, we need everyone to speak up when you have something to say. And we need everyone to serve. We need speaking. We need serving. Our community needs both. The elders do not have all the answers. And we need you to play your part. Or else we're going to be limited. It's going to be like playing baseball with one hand tied behind our back. We're not going to be able to do everything we need to do. So as we walk together with Jesus, some of us will die for Jesus. And some of us will live a long time for Jesus. Many of us, like Peter, will have to do things we don't want to do. Being gifted at something doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want. It means that you see your life as a gift to the church and you do what God wants you to do. So in summary, Jesus will feed his people. And the way he feeds his people is by feeding his disciples so that they can go and feed others. So are you feeding on Jesus, on his words and his works? And are you taking that and feeding others by serving and by speaking? It's well worth it because this is how Jesus is bringing eternal life to the world. Let's pray.